my daughter skipped off stage real quick before I could embarrass her up here, but um, this last time she'll be performing as Leah White. The next time she'll be performing here in sometime in the future, she'll be Leah Crandall. There she is. Um, as with... You got back. There we go. As with uh, pretty much every time I speak, you get some form of movie quote, correct? It's not necessarily a movie quote. You get a movie, a movie script. Uh, Kingdom of Heaven was a movie with uh, Orlando Bloom. It was really about the Crusades at the time. Um, and I don't necessarily suggest the movie, although it actually has some interesting themes in it about true Christianity versus what the Christian, Christianity that, uh, that the Crusaders kind of portrayed at times. Uh, it's violent, uh, so it's not something that I say, you know, why let your kids watch. But if you do get a come across chance, it is an interesting movie because it does kind of portray the Crusades uh, at the time in a, in a unique way. So, uh, but we're going to talk today about kingdom of God, really. I say kingdom of heaven, but the kingdom of God. Um, and just some, some of our misconceptions about it. Um, begin with this. Familiarity with things kind of um, deadens our understanding and our perceptions. Uh, familiarity with verses, let's say. John 3.16. We get desensitized to the power of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but not have eternal life, right? I mean, that's what we do. And we lose the power of some of those verses or some of those themes or some of those things that have become most familiar to us. Gospel of the kingdom is one of those. Okay? So Matthew 3, 20, 4, 23. Then, this is after Jesus had kind of called his disciples in the, in, in the area of Galilee. Then he went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every illness among the people. Um, that's become a pretty familiar verse to me. Without really understanding much of what that contains or what that means or what was Jesus really doing in Galilee, okay? Mark 1, 21 through 22. Then he went to Capernaum. As soon as it was the Sabbath, Jesus went and said, God began to teach. Similar time frame, similar understanding. The people were utterly amazed at his teaching because he was teaching them like one with authority and not like their scribes. Again, familiarity kind of hits us. What did it mean that he was teaching with authority and not like their scribes? What would the, like the scribes been? Anybody got any ideas? What would, the, what would teaching like their scribes have been? Book, book nerd. Book nerd. Got the, he's got all the book knowledge and he's going to read it to you and he's going to present it to you uh, in, the, in the nerdy way. Here we go. Yeah. Anybody else? Works versus the heart. Ritual. Becomes very impersonalized. In fact, a lot of it, I think, teachers, there's a couple different ways of teaching up here. I can teach at you, meaning I'm going to take something that I see maybe the word might say, and I'm going to say, you, Elliot, must do this. Okay? But it has no real personal meaning to me. One of the things I think that make Will, me, somewhat of what we do here different is what we try to bring to you, what am I going through 
What is God teaching me, and how can that relate then to you? Because it's real to me. And that has so much more power here than me academically telling you something that I understand from the Bible. Okay? So Jesus proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom with authority like none other. And we're going to talk about what that was and what that means in a little bit. Um, So I asked, what was Jesus proclaiming? Said the gospel. Gospel meaning what? Good news. Another term we've become so familiar with, we don't quite understand the meaning of it here. A lot of times we say gospel, we think death, resurrection on the cross. That's our immediate thinking. Because we've done that to our language. We've done that to the word gospel. But gospel in that time, in that particular place, when it said Jesus was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, meaning the good news of the kingdom, he was telling the people of Galilee about the difference of the economy of God versus what they had understood. Didn't really have, he wasn't telling them about the cross at this point. He hadn't died on the cross. So something different was being told here, and it was good news to these people. Of the kingdom of God, what was that? That's what we're going to talk about. With authority, he was doing it as the author. I'm just going to stand up here, and I'm going to tell you from my perspective, and it's going to have a good relation to you. What if Jesus was up here telling you? Not just from his relational standpoint to being able to relate to you, but from the authoritative standpoint of he is God. God himself was speaking this good news to the people of Galilee. And to who? Who was the people of Galilee? Followers. Followers, okay. Common folk. That's a a really good way of putting it. These were the common, ordinary people that lived their day-to-day lives, in particularly away from the religious center that was Jerusalem, that was Judea, Right? Jerusalem and Judea had what big, big thing in it? Temple. temple. It had the temple. All the center of religion was kind of there. And all of the, the scribes, you know, when I say, when I hear scribes, here's my one movie quote of the day. Uh, when I hear scribes, all I can think of is knowledge. Knowledge <laughs> is what brings us together today. If you don't remember what that is, that's the print movie, The Princess Bride. Um, it's... <laughs> that blessed arrangement, that dream within a dream. Anyway. Okay. That can't be your one and only. That, well, it may end up being. We'll see how this goes. This is the only planned one. Okay. That's what I thought of when I see your scribes. You know, the priest in all of his garment and garb up here speaking. And think something happened. And that's what the people of Jerusalem, people of Israel were used to. Particularly in Galilee, Galilee had this mix of Gentile, Jews. They were away from the center. They were closer to the rest of the world than Jerusalem was. The rest of the world kind of had its influence in Galilee. In fact, between Galilee and Jerusalem, what area was it that that Jesus spoke a lot about people of? Samaria. And those people called Samaritans, who were half-breeds. Okay? So imagine what was happening in the north even, in what was considered Israel, still all of the influences of the rest of the world versus the Jewish thing that was going on. 
So this is who and what and why he was proclaiming. But it really begs the question, what is the kingdom of God? Okay, what is the kingdom of God? What was, he, what was that, that which he was proclaiming? I want to talk about first, if we're going to know and understand what it is, let's talk about what it's not. Well, kingdoms in general, kingdoms in general, kingdoms defined usually as some form of ruling entity, all of the kind of the area that is ruled, and that, that has a pretty good understanding of us, but the next two is something that you quite haven't seen yet. What is worshipped? And the rules are underlying ethic of that worship. I like to say it like this. Kingdom can be equated to our worldview. How we really define the world and those things that define our actions. Okay? We've talked a lot about it in here. Will's talked about it. We've talked about the thing. There are, there's this chasm between the things we say we believe right? We say we believe this, but what we actually do, because this defines what we actually believe. Just because I say I believe it doesn't mean I actually act on that belief. That defines our walk with Christ, because our entire life is trying, should be trying, to close that gap between the things that I say I believe the things that God asks me to believe, and the things that I truly believe. Kingdom comes down to our worldview, that thing which we truly believe. We're going to see that with kingdom according to the Jewish people. How did the Jewish leadership, particularly the Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, the people in charge, how did they determine, how did they see the kingdom of God? What was the defining factors of this kingdom of God for the Jewish people? They didn't know. What else? The nation of Israel. The nation of Israel. How, why, what about the particular nation of Israel? What did they think the Messiah was coming to do? They wanted to overthrow. They said they thought the kingdom of God was going to come down and overthrow the oppressors that were oppressing them, which at that time was the Romans. But if you really understand things, the Romans were oppressing them. Before them, it was the Greeks. Before the Greeks, it was the Persians. Before the Persians, it was the Babylonians. Well, the Assyrians were in there somewhere. The Babylonians. And before the Babylonians and the Assyrians, it was the Egyptians. Pretty much since the inception of Moses. Let my people go. There's another one. Okay, I got two in there. I got two in there. All right, that one was unintentional. But I had to do the, you have to do Charlton Heston if you're going to. Spirit led. It's spirit led. It's going to go. Okay. Since that time. They've always been oppressed. And they were always looking for some kind of freedom from that oppression. So, from the kingdom standpoint, the ideal way in which they were seeing was freedom from oppression. But there's an ethic that goes along with that. Okay, The ethic that goes along with their kingdom was healthy, wealthy, and wise. And when I say wise, what I mean is education. Because you know, there is a good deterrent. Wise wisdom in, in a godly sense is there. So when I say wise here, I'm using the euphemism, healthy, wealthy, and wise, to say their ethic about the way life should be was healthy, wealthy, and wise. What do I mean by that? 
Okay. If they saw someone who had leprosy, what did they think about that person? What? They're not part of the kingdom, but what particularly about them? They're sinners. They did something wrong. They did something to deserve the leprosy that was upon them. They were not healthy. If they saw someone who was poor, what did they think about them? They did something wrong to deserve the poor. The goal of a good Jewish boy was to go up through their, to under 13... Their bar mitzvah, yep. And then continue in that education in God and move into some kind of teaching under a rabbi. Okay, that's the good side. And then they would start to work their their religious life out and they would become possibly a Pharisee, a scribe, a Sadducee, something of that nature, something of note in their community. That was the ethic by which they lived by. If you wanted to live the right life, you needed to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. You need to come up through the ranks this way. And if anywhere along that path, you deviated from that, you went back to whatever your dad did. So the disciples, John, James, Peter, and Andrew, went back to doing what? Fishing. Fishing. They hit 13. They weren't the guys that, the, 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 that they wanted in synagogue. They weren't those guys, so they went back to fishing. Or you went back to hunting. Or you went back to farming. Or you went back to shepherding. Okay? The problem along all those lines was if you were a shepherd, could you ever really participate in the religious system of the Jews? Why? You were unclean. And you were always unclean because you handled animals. Right? Even fishing. Could you ever really be clean fishing? Okay? So the common people lived in this world that was not healthy, wealthy, and wise, yet everything about their religious practice said, if you're not healthy, wealthy, and wise, you are failing at the mission of what God wants you to be. That was the kingdom and the ethic in which they lived under. So you had the haves and the have-nots, and the have-nots just lived with it, because that's all they could do. Is there anything really different about then and now? Nope. Today's ethic, our goals for our children, what do we want from our children? Healthy, wealthy, and wise. And successful. Our goal, our kids need to go to school. They need to go to college because they need to be educated. They need to go to graduate school. They need to find that job and that spouse and have the two and a half kids that everybody expects them to have. And by 40, they're going to sit there and look back on their life and go, man, I accomplished everything I want to do. Look how good I am. Now, I really want to, I was going to say show of hands. I might even ask for it. How many people's lives in this place have gone like that? Anybody? And let me tell you something. If you told me you went like that, you're lying. You're a liar. But we've created the kingdoms of healthy, wealthy, and wise here. In the worldly aspects. But we've also done it in Christianity. 
I can't tell you how many times in my life I've thought, I don't deserve this because I didn't get right with God. I live in shame because of the things I did, and I now need to hide from God just like Adam and Eve. Because what did I do? I created a kingdom in my head that God wants me to be healthy, wealthy, and wise, and I'm not. That's the kingdom I've created. That's the kingdom, unfortunately, we've created. One of the areas that probably has the most impact of this, politics. We've created kingdoms in politics. Now, I was going to go through the, the t- politics and kind of give you the Greek of the politics. Look, poly means many, right? We know poly means many. Ticks, old German word, blood-sucking creatures. Okay? Pretty sure that's probably not right, but it worked. In, I'm not going to talk about outside of the... I'm going to talk about our experiences here. Issues, political issues particularly, have become kingdoms in the evangelical Christian world. We've created standards. We've created things. We talk about those things abstractly. Third party. It's easy for us to do that. It's easy. It's not uncomfortable to sit back and talk about how bad this side of the political party is or that side of the political party is. It's easy to sit back and talk about moral issues, the moral majority of the 90s, the 80s and the 90s that that went on. That's easy to do. It's not uncomfortable. We gather ourselves together and talk about these great grand issues. One of those issues that's really poked its head recently is abortion. We can easily talk about life, and it's not wrong. But the way in which we talk about it, we create a kingdom around that issue. And it becomes abstract, and it becomes third party. And they are no longer people, it's a they. We love to talk about they. Bring that up because Roe versus Wade was overturned, and there was all forms of celebration and different ways in which people have gone about that. But I want to present to you something. You want to start loading that up, Laura? Present to you something a little bit different to understand on this issue. Good morning. So I never set out to be a voice for the unborn or unplanned pregnancies, but life has a way of not going as planned. I grew up in Plano in a Christian home in the height of church legalism and the right to life movement. I remember my thoughts around abortion and Planned Parenthood of judgment and disdain, yelling picketers outside of clinics, pictures of unborn babies on the street corners, all the things. Yet at 19, the summer after my freshman year at Baylor, I found myself in the waiting room of Planned Parenthood. 
I was awaiting the results of my pregnancy test. The place that had been drilled in my head as the evil place was the only place that I felt like I could turn when I needed help, when I was alone. I remember the nurse coming back into the room and quickly saying, it's positive. It's only by God's grace at that moment that I didn't choose abortion. But it was at that moment that I fully understood how and why you can. I wasn't a murderer. I didn't hate children. But I was desperate. I didn't know how I was going to care for my baby. I also didn't want the outside world, especially the Christian world, to see me as promiscuous. All of that nearly pushed me to end life in secrecy. My story from that waiting room to now has taken many twists and turns. For years, I carried that shame for getting pregnant out of wedlock, which led to more unhealthy decisions and consequences. But God, in his sovereignty and grace, he was orchestrating a plan and a passion and a purpose for my life. He was birthing inside of me a desire to run after those just like me, the lost, the scared, the hopeless. I began feeling the weight of a, as a Christ follower and realizing that when a girl was in a situation like I was, the church was the last place she would turn. It makes no sense when you read the word. This is the actual moment where Christians should enter. This is the moment that the church should be open arms and open doors. For the last 12 years, I've worked for Young Lives, a teen mom and parent outreach program. I've had the privilege to know, love, and serve some of the most amazing people. They found themselves pregnant many times after the innocence of their childhood had been taken. These parents are strong, they're resilient, and they want the best for their children. They've allowed myself and our mentors into their pain. They've allowed us in on their best and their worst days. Last fall, at one of our events, I asked our girls to write on a sticky note what people have said to them. Friends, it crushed my soul. I know it grieved the heart of our Father. The words that have been spoken over to them were vile. They were pure death. From shaming to name-calling to wishing death upon them, them or their child. This is a weighty issue. We can all agree on that. Lawmakers cannot change hearts. Lawmakers cannot change hearts to force us to love and serve the vulnerable and the hopeless. Only our Heavenly Father can. Your next steps matter. The church's response matters. This was never just about legislation or being pro-life. It is about how we, the church, step in in love with action. I believe that God is giving us the greatest opportunity to display his love, his lavish, redeeming, restoring love like never before. 
The issue of life is never going to be wrapped up with a bow. It's messy. It's hard. It's exhausting. It's heartbreaking. It's long-suffering. Yet our God, he created a way through his own example of sitting with the least of them for crossing barriers of race, culture, and economics to do this work and to do it well. This is not just a baby issue. This is not just a don't have sex issue. So what's next? This work is not just about diapers and wipes. Yet, friends, we need all the diapers and wipes. When we love in hard places, the physical needs are evident. We need housing, cars, education, mental health resources. We need all the things. We need more foster families. We need more families that are willing to adopt. We need more families that want to mentor young mothers and fathers. We need resources for job opportunities and training. But above all, we need Jesus. We need him to show us how to love like he loves. I believe the Lord is calling us at this very moment, church, to get uncomfortable and to do more. It's time for us to step into these hard spaces for the sake of the gospel and for the lives that are at stake. God wants to use you. He wants to use your story. We've been invited to take part in the work that changes lives and generations. Church, now more than ever, the world is watching. Watching what we're going to do next. We must get to work. Isaiah 61.1 For the Spirit of the Lord God is upon us because the Lord has anointed us to bring good news to the poor. He set us to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison doors for those that are bound. Friends, will you join me? Will you come alongside bringing tangible hope to the hopeless? Let's watch what God can do when we get uncomfortable and we say yes. Thank you. Kingdom is a lot more like that. What is God's kingdom? A couple things that I have in my Bible study. Understanding, again, time and perspective is different. When, Jesus, when, when we read the scriptures, understanding the times and understanding what was going on then. When it said Jesus was proclaiming the gospel or the good news of the kingdom of God, he was teaching the people something different. And he was teaching them that God's economy, God's ethic, God's kingdom is completely different than everything they thought it was. My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord, and my ways are far beyond anything you can imagine. And Jesus sat down with the common people and told them that. So, a couple things about God's kingdom. Number one, in God's kingdom, people are more important than any issue or kingdom we create. 
people are more important. Matthew 5, 23 and 24, Jesus is talking. This is in Matthew 5. Matthew 5 is what section of the, of the Bible? What's in Matthew 5? Matthew 5, 6, 7, and 8. What'd you say? Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, 23 through 24, he says, if you're going to the temple, which was their kingdom, the temple was everything. Bringing your sacrifice was everything to a Jewish person. This is your... This is what you do to worship God. You sacrifice in the temple for your sins. And Jesus says, you on your way to your sacrifice, if you realize you have a problem with your brother, put your sacrifice on the floor and go back to your brother. What's more important? The kingdom or the person? Jesus healed on Sabbath days. Sabbath was the holy of holies for a Jew. You did not work on the Sabbath. You didn't lift a finger on the Sabbath. You don't push buttons in an elevator in a Jewish high-rise on the Sabbath. Okay? But when Jesus walked in and saw a lame person on the floor, he said, get up, pick up your mat and walk. But he did it on the Sabbath. What did they do? The wonderful they. To them, the Sabbath was more important than a person. And Jesus said, the Sabbath was made for people. The people were not made for the Sabbath. People. So my question in this, in what Amanda was saying, Why was the church the last place someone like Amanda would turn to when she has a problem like that? We've created our kingdoms. And we've looked at our youth, and we've looked at the people struggling in our church, and we've said, don't come to us. Our kingdom is far more important than you are. That's what we've done. That's us, not they. I hate, they, it's easy to talk about they, it's hard to talk about us. But we have done this ourselves. Healthy, wealthy, and wise has no place in God's kingdom. Blessed are the rich, the powerful. The self-confident. No. Matthew 5 says, blessed are the poor. Those who mourn. Those who are persecuted. Where does any of that fit with our idea of healthy, wealthy, and wise? What is our life going to look like? We want it to be here. This is the ethic we've created. This is the kingdom we've created. And God's kingdom says it's not that. Romans 5, 3 through 5. We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials. Is this someone who is a non believing person? Is this written to the non believer? 
No, this is relating to the believer. We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance, and endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. Problems and trials are coming. They've already been. That's the reality each of us live with. But it's also a reality that so many times we hide because of the kingdoms we've created. Why would someone like Amanda see abortion as their only way out? The kid, well, better yet here, this is one of the things I came across. The church built into Amanda that healthy, wealthy, and wise was the standard. Amanda was a middle-class woman with a middle-class family going to college. Could she live with a baby? Could she exist? Could she get by? The answer in this, yes. There are certain circumstances that people walk into an abortion clinic. I'm not going to put those aside. That it is a destitute person for all kinds of variety of reasons that having a child may be actually life-threatening in terms of their ability to be able to survive. Okay? I'm not going to discount that. But far too many of the people sitting in an abortion clinic are sitting there because their life of health, wealth, and wise is on the line. They can't finish school. They can't get the job. They can't marry the right person. They can't have the two and a half kids at that level. Amanda's world came crumbling down of what she thought the world should be, and her only solution to it, sit in an abortion clinic and see if uh, having an abortion, because that's going to solve it. But how many of our, how many, how many of our young people will have this as their ethic and see another bad decision as the way out so that they're back on track to this. But the real issue is this. Is that going to solve healthy, wealthy, and wise if they have it? No. That's the lie. This lie being told to us by Satan, he laughs at us. I got him. They'll do whatever it takes to stay on this course, no matter what. We lie, we cheat, we steal, and we kill. God wants us to come to him despite what you have done, not because of what you've done. Romans 12, 1 through 3. The way I know it in my head is, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. I had a guy in a talk at a, at a, at a uh, campus crusade outreach, and he put it like this. He would, he would start it out by saying, I beg you, I plead with you, I beseech you, by the mercies of God, mercies like this, in light of what God's like, 
and despite what you're like. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you, give your bodies to God because all he has done for you, not because of what you've done for him. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind that he will find acceptable. This is the true, this is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good, pleasing, and perfect because of the privilege and authority God has given in each of you. Don't think you're better than you really are. But we do it with healthy, wealthy, and wise. Be honest in your evaluation yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith God has given us. One of my new favorite verses of all time is this Titus 3, um, 3 through 7. I, it, it started to strike me in my class, and for somehow I apply this to almost anything I teach. Sorry. Okay? Once we too were foolish and disobedient, we were misled and became slaves to many lusts and pleasures. Our lives were full of evil and envy, and we hated each other. But when God, our Savior, revealed his kindness and love... He saved us not because of the righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth, a new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Because of his grace, he made us right in his sight and gave us confidence that we will enter eternal life. Our lives are modeled or molded by our experiences. God uses them for his glory. Amanda's life was molded by the years of, let's say it, she said it, bad decisions. Twists and turns that life present to you. Things that you do. But God used it for him. You do not have to wait. You do not have to become everything God wants you to be, and then God uses you. God wants you right now. So I'm going to close. I'm going to look at the youth, the six. Hi, six. But any youth in the building, we failed you in that Part of the reason that you're not going to come to us when you fall into problems is because we've told you. This is the way. This is it. This is the life, and everything should be perfect. And when it's not perfect, oh my gosh, things have fallen apart. No. We want to be a church, a leadership, an underlying leadership, a people that when life comes at you, and it will, there is no lie about that. You can come to us, and we will help you. We will walk you through it. We will be there with you. We will not yell amazingly bad names at you. If you do anything, remember that. Everybody else, 
Same applies to you. Our lives are messy. From the time that we're born to the time that we die, this is messy. It's not healthy, wealthy, and wise, and none of us have followed that pattern. I've actually kind of figured out something about age. I don't know why I'm bringing this up. Age does something unique to us. It either makes us very bitter or it makes us very humble because you no longer can do, be, have, live the way you used to. So you either become extremely bitter at that and become the grumpy old, you know, was it Mr. Here, third movie reference, Mr. Potter from It's a Wonderful Life. Okay. Or you become more humbled. You become to an understanding that you can't live this life on your own. You become more dependent upon everybody around you, and ultimately you become more dependent upon God. Let us walk with you here. Do not be turned off by the kingdoms that we tend to talk about because we do it. I'll do it today. We'll do it tomorrow. We'll do it five days from now, 10 days from now, 50 days. We will always do it. Hopefully, we will begin to bring what we believe and what we actually do closer together. Let's pray. Father, I've just been struck by how different your kingdom really is. Jesus sat down with the common people, related to them, and told them, this idea that you see your leaders portraying is not what God wants. He wants you. In your struggles, in your pains, in your trials, and he wants you to turn to him. And you can. You don't have to fix them first before you get to them. I just pray for your spirit on all of our lives that we just come one step closer to truly understanding that. And maybe one more person will turn to us to allow us to be your tool to help them in their life. Thank you for everything you are. Thank you for this church. These are wonderful people. And the fact that they let me come up here and say things like this says a lot. We love you. Let's worship you now in your son's name. Amen.